91.3 KBCS Community Radio, a listener-supported public service of Bellevue College. Check us out at kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast wherever you pick them up. On February 9th, Ijoma Oluo spoke with ACLU Washington Executive Director Michelle Storms at Seattle Town Hall about Oluo's book, Be a Revolution. Special thanks to Seattle Town Hall and the speakers for permission to broadcast this event. Are we excited? Yeah. Well, welcome. As Yasmin mentioned, thank you, Yasmin. Um, as Yasmin mentioned, my name is Aisha Shah, and I am the Director of Programs and Partnerships here at Town Hall. We are so excited to have you all here tonight for our presentation with Ijeoma Luo and Michelle Storms. Ijeoma's book, Be a Revolution, is the subject of tonight's talk. I hope you know that. <laughs> Um, as we get underway, I would like to acknowledge that our institution stands on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, particularly the Duwamish. We thank them for our continuing use of the natural resources of their ancestral homeland. The presentation tonight will last approximately 60 minutes, including the Q&A. When we get to the Q&A portion of the event, we ask if you are able to come on up to this microphone. It is not here. We will pass a microphone around. <laughs> Um, you can also submit your questions via smartphone QR code right there. Um, and if you are joining us online, we will drop that link in the chat for you. Um, we always try to get to as many questions as possible, uh, but it does help if you keep your questions concise. Um, as Yasmin mentioned, this is Town Hall is a member-supported organization. Town Hall's work is made possible through your support and the support of our sponsors. Our civic series is sponsored by the True Brown Foundation. Also, can we just get a round of applause for all of our members who are here tonight? Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you who are feeling left out, you can be a member too. <laughs> Don't feel left out. Just go on over to our website, click on that member link. We have different tiers of membership. We've got something for everyone. So I hope you consider joining. Um, and when you're on the website, you will notice that we add new events and podcasts every day. Our team is working very hard to make sure that we have more programs like this for you through the year. Some exciting events that I would like to talk about briefly. Um, we have Pulitzer Prize finalist Tommy Orange, who will be joining us, yes. His new book, Wandering Stars, which is both a prequel and a sequel to his novel, There, There, will be coming out soon and he will be here on May 21st. I hope you get tickets for that one. Um, the other one I'm very excited about, this is a local author, Tessa Hulls. This is her debut novel called Feeding Ghosts. Yep, yeah. I like that energy. Feeding Ghosts is a graphic novel memoir that tells the story of three generations of women in her family and Tessa will be here on March 6th. You don't wanna miss that one. And lastly, I will stop talking soon, um, Award-winning journalist, podcast host, some of you may know, Kara Swisher, she will be here. Her new book, Burn Book, which I think might be an ode to Mean Girls, I'm not sure. Um, but she will also be here in March, so go ahead and get your tickets for that one. Um, and lastly, if you haven't already gotten a copy of Be A Revolution, Third Place Books is in the lobby, so make sure you grab a copy on the way out. Um, and finally, I know none of you came here to hear me talk tonight, um, I'm gonna <laughs> introduce Ijeoma Lo and Michelle Storms. Ijeoma is a writer, speaker, and internet yeller. She's the, author <laughs> She's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. And most... <laughs> and most recently, 
Mediocre, the Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Her work has been featured in The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, among many other publications. She was named the 2021 Time 100 Next List and has twice been named to the Route 100. She received the 2018 Feminist Humanist Award and the 2020 Harvard Humanist of the Year Award from the American Humanist Association. She lives in Seattle, Washington. Some of you might know that as well. Yeah. Yep. And Michelle Storms is the Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington, AKA the ACLU. Yep. Former Deputy Director of the ACLU of Washington and previous Assistant Dean for Public Service and Executive Director of the William H. Gates Public Service Law Program at the University of Washington School of Law. Yep. Michelle is concerned with equity and justice for all and has dedicated her professional and personal attention to access to justice, preservation of freedom and democracy for all and ensuring that all humans safely reside in the circle of human concern. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ijeoma Luo and Michelle Storms. needed that. Thank you all. Oh my goodness. I feel like you're happy to see us. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So let's just get this started. And um, first of all, Joma, congratulations on your third book. Thank your you. third amazing, breathtaking book. And I know that your book dropped just about January 30th, and since then you have been traveling, you started in New York City, you've been talking about this book, but tonight you're in your hometown. Yes. <laughs> I have been wanting to celebrate at home like this whole time, it feels like gearing up to it. Be like, yes, I'm coming home and get to be back in this beautiful space and see all of y'all. It just means so much. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here. So, um, so yeah, welcome. Congratulations. We're all happy to be here with you. And let's just get into it because you all, please read this book. It is so powerful. It is so full of stories of people and events and activism just in service of making our world a better place. And um, I think particularly with a particular focus on those who have been dehumanized and marginalized and made vulnerable because of their identities, right? So this book just really encapsulates all of that. And I'm just really thinking about what was it that led you to tell this collection of stories at this time? Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think a lot of it was 
I was at a similar space to where so many of us are at, where I was really tired and feeling really hurt. But also as a writer, I had been writing about violent white male supremacy for years, had written two books that really delved into these painful issues, and I was feeling really wrung dry. And I was going to take a break, and I had announced very publicly on social media I wasn't going to be writing again after Mediocre for a while. And then I started thinking about you know, whether I wanted that personal experience I had to be the one that I left with. I love Mediocre, it's a really good book, but you know, I was feeling very deeply hurt writing about violent white male supremacy while trying to survive it as a black woman and you know, as our family was being personally targeted at the same time. And then 2020 happened and all of the events of that year really underscored for me how vital community is. And that the real story in our hardest times is how we come together. And the people who have been doing this work generation after generation to ensure our survival. And I wanted to spend time in that. I wanted people to see that. I wanted to take away this kind of, well, what could I do? There's nothing I can do. Because people have been doing. And because I wasn't seeing, you know, the people who I knew were helping us survive, getting a light shone on them. You know, I wasn't, I was seeing people try to reinvent the wheel. What if we did this? What if we did this? And not what if we plugged into what's already being done? And so I wanted that for myself, but I also wanted it for everyone else. That's perfect. That's exactly right. You know, yes. Um, and 2020 did shake a whole lot of things up, not because none of that wasn't already real, but it shook a lot of things up. It shook a lot of people up. So in this book where you're sharing all these stories, one of the things I notice is it's not linear you'll introduce um, uh, an area of activism or a person or a story, um, and then you'll loop back to them and keep looking back to them. And then in between that, interwoven in all of that fabric is some of your personal stories where you share about your own experiences, and that happens also throughout the book. And one of the things uh, you also said in there was that in a lot of ways writing the book changed your life. So can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even if no one bought a copy of this book, it would be a success for the ways in which it changed me. The way that I view movement work, the way I view my work as a writer, the way I view the world. I, I thought I was going to have like a healing experience working on this. I didn't realize I was going to have a transformative experience. You know, often as writers, you're writing about things that you know very, very well. And you know, when I'm writing books, often writing about things that I have been writing about in various ways for a long time. But this, moving into other spaces where people were really surprising me with their work, mm -hmm. surprising me with their theory, challenging me in the way I saw myself, and really flexing my skills as a writer to try to find a way to honor 34 different voices, mm -hmm. um, to integrate the things I was learning um, there's just so many ways in which it's changed. And I see myself so differently as a writer. I see myself differently as a human. 
um, and I see the possibilities for a future differently. And so I'm super grateful for that. One of the things that um, I appreciate about you so much, and I'm guessing this is true for a lot of folks here, is you're such a truth teller. And um, another one of the threads that's woven in this story is the ties in, so this book, because many of you probably haven't read it yet, but there's sections on uh, mass incarceration and abolition, and abolition, environmental justice, uh, gender justice, and so on, right? Uh, disability justice, and we'll definitely be talking about that tonight, but uh, underneath all of these things is this one core evil, which is racism. You bring it up very compellingly, show how it is underlying each of these areas, what the connections are. You have research, you aren't fooling around, it's all there. <laughs> we are also in a time, as so many of you are aware, that uh, sort of countrywide there's this effort to erase the telling of our true history and the fact that racism exists. So like in my work at ACLU, we see it with book bans, for example. Can't have books about racism or about the LGBTQ experience, right? All of that erasure that's happening. And so against the backdrop of that, when we know what's true and that if we face what's true, we can change it, there's this denial happening. And what are the things that you think we can do to combat that, to get at the truth, to heal, and to make change? You know, a couple of things. One is we have to stop acting like this is only happening in particular areas of our society. This idea where people in Seattle love to say, thank goodness I don't live in the South. Thank goodness, that would never happen here. <laughs> and one thing that's been really made clear, not only in my conversations with people, but in my research, is this is happening everywhere. And by the time you realize it, it can be too late. So anytime you see this, act like it's happening in your neighborhood. Ask what's happening in your schools. Ask what's happening in your businesses. Pay attention and be proactive. The truth is, is that a small minority of scared people with unexamined racism have been able to be mobilized to go out and make these really big changes in our businesses, in our universities, in our K through 12 schools. And they're not being met with opposition. They're being met after the fact by people like you, right, who are being asked, can you roll back this thing <laughs> that's been in place, you know, been in the works for months. And when I'm talking about what's happening in school board meetings, I'm not seeing parents lining up and saying, what are you doing to ensure accurate, inclusive education for my kids? They're not being met. And so that's the thing I want people to understand. If you're not safeguarding what we need and building for what you want to see now, you can't get it after it's been taken away. And so pay attention to what's happening. If you don't have kids in schools, you still need to care about what's happening in schools. And I don't think people understand, a lot of this actually has started in the Pacific Northwest. There are political operatives in the Pacific Northwest who are authoring 
the speech of these changes that are going out to state governments and local governments and school boards. They're spreading them, they're sending them, they're cut and paste, ready to go. We have to be aware, we have to be fighting as hard to protect what we love. All that, when we don't do that, we're doing so much damage. We know these systems aren't perfect. But every time we're knocked back another five steps, we're just adding to what we have to do. And so I want people to understand that we have to be coordinated. We have to see where our futures are aligned. Because the people who actually want this discussion out, who, who don't want people to understand how systems work, who don't want accurate education, who want to turn this into a political issue that can effectively cement power in oppressive forces for multiple generations, they are healing all their differences right now. They're setting aside every political difference, economic difference, racial difference they have because they know they have an opportunity to get what they want. And we haven't done the same. That is a real true word. And you know, I noticed that you said, right, the school board meetings where people are out there giving a particular message and you don't hear anybody countering that. Um, and then we wait till it's too late. And a, a lot of what's happening in this book is an invitation to how anybody can be engaged from where you are, doesn't have to be a, a writer or a lawyer or whatever, um, and that's important. You mentioned that you needed to take a, a break and a healing, and in fact, you talk in the book about how your family has been targeted, right, because of your writing and because of your truth-telling. And you talk about how the punishment of the people um, who did harm to you all um, didn't actually address the underlying problem. It didn't actually lead to healing, right? You said in the book, you said, as one of few black people who actually got to see some measure of justice for harm caused by white supremacy, I can tell you I'm no safer for it. And I'd love for you to say a little bit more about navigating the system with that understanding and indeed trying to work to build those alternatives that would in fact make us be safer. Right, you know, I think a lot of times when like our family was slotted in 2018 and my son's life was put at risk, when we were then subjected to weeks of harassment in our home to where we had to move, the way in which people immediately said, you should sue, you should call the cops, you should do all of these things that have never served our community. Of course, the police were involved right away because they were weaponized against us. Swatting, in case you don't know, is where you spoof um, an address, you spoof a phone number to be near someone's address, you call the authorities, you make a threat with the intent of sending armed SWAT teams to someone's home. And this is an incredibly effective weapon against black people. And so when that was done to us, of course the police were immediately involved. They were literally six of them showing up with guns at our door waking my son up at six o'clock in the morning thinking he had killed us. And in no way <laughs> were we made safer in the aftermath of that. Uh, once it became public, 
Our address was then confirmed. Um, none of our private information was redacted. So anyone could issue a request and get our phone numbers. My son, a teenager at the time, was getting phone calls from press, from random people. And there was no check-in of, how are you safe? The only advice we were given was, don't speak out. It emboldens them. And none of it said, why is a 20-year-old college student risking his entire future to terrorize a black family? What is behind that? And I'm not talking about, let's dive into this kid's life. But what, why are we have so many young white men trying to terrorize us? What is broken in our society? How can we fix that? And so eventually when this cell of young terrorists was broken up, because I wasn't the only person being targeted, black and um, Jewish journalists all over the Pacific Northwest, Jewish synagogues all over the country, uh, black journalists all over the country were being targeted. And I got to see the mugshot of one of the leaders who was doing a lot of the swatting, see this kid, this college student. And they looked like if you were to be like, who's the stereotypical kid who might spend all day in front of a computer swatting people? This kid looked like that. <laughs> and you know, they went through this whole process. We weren't informed of any of the process. And we got a small reprieve. But what caused this whole thing to happen? Never addressed. Never a part of the process. And it underscored to me, even when I got what so many black people don't get, that none of this touches root issues of harm. And they were not concerned with root issues of harm. No one said, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And so I'm not safer. I got a break. And all it takes is someone else to be activated by what I say, have it trigger some deep resentment that they have with our systems that they've learned to focus on people who look like me. And we're right back where we started. And I just want people to understand that. Because for so many people, I was getting like, oh, isn't that great? I got arrested. But I wasn't safer. And I know that every day. And Do you know what you just said goes so much to the heart of why I think people talk about abolition movements and the dismantling of systems because we don't focus on why, is, why are these things happening? Why are these harms happening? Why are people behaving in these ways that cause harm? And we, all, we know that a lot of times people who cause harm have experienced harm, right? But there's so many factors and we don't get into it. So you spend a, what, I think one of the first chapters in the book is actually about abolition and criminal legal system and uh, punishment. And uh, it's punishment, accountability, and abolition, I think is what you called it, right? And um, so you talk about all these people who are doing really powerful work to change systems and dismantle systems. So um, uh, one of the things that I wanted to share was, uh, you, there's some beautiful quotes about 
how every action that we take isn't necessarily gonna be a big sweeping action that changes the world. It's gonna be the little things. And you talk about living into an abolitionist world. So there's this quote here from the book, again, so beautiful. Many of our movements and organizations fighting for abolition and liberation are strictly hierarchical, patriarchal, and punitive in nature. The ways in which we deal with conflict with one another typically mirrors the same systems of punishment and revenge we're trying to battle. If we want to win this battle, we must focus both internally and externally, and that means that all of us must do our part. So please say some more about how we can live into that and all do our part. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our, you know, it's where we have to start. Otherwise, it's just theory. We have an opportunity to live our abolitionist principles, our liberatory principles every day. I don't think we've fully investigated how deeply ingrained these patriarchal punishment-based ideas are in how we move through the world. And I see it even in movement work. And if you talk to any seasoned movement workers, they've seen it, it's harmed them, it's one of the first things that can destroy a movement is that when a moment conflict arises, you're leaning into, I'm gonna make sure that you never do this again. Or I'm gonna flex my power over you. I'm gonna punish you because I feel harmed. And not how do we move through this and heal? How do we look at all the contributing factors to this? And if we want, you know, Getting rid of oppressive systems is only half the battle, if that. Because what do we replace it with? And if we don't want to replace it with other harmful systems, we gotta start practicing. And the good news is, is we, get, we have plenty of opportunities, you know? I'm a mom. I'm a mom of a teenager who's right up here. <laughs> and the ways in which I, have to, I, I try to flex those skills in negotiations about homework. You're being listened to. There we go. There he is, he's just mugging for all y'all see. You know, and try to figure out what we want our relationship to be is an opportunity for me to practice. You know, does he do what he's supposed to do because he doesn't want me to yell? or because we negotiated. And I don't always fall on the right side of that. With my partner, how are we handling conflict? How are you looking at who does what? Are we talking, are we building consent into how we work through these things as an employer, right? Am I just hierarchical in everything I do? Do the people who work with me have consent in how my business works and what is expected of them. You know, these are all opportunities for us to say, these things I want our big systems to give us, we can do now. And like, I think Richie Reseda said something like, you know, we have all these ideas what we want and we start with the cops. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe we should start in our homes. And it doesn't mean we can't ask the cops to stop killing us. 
But it also means like if we want to know what we want to build, we got to start practicing and working it. Because it doesn't just turn on. You don't just, you don't enter a movement space and suddenly you have all these ideals. What actually turns on the moment that you're stressed, the moment things get hard, is what you are doing every day. And so living that is one of the you know, most vital things we can be doing right now. Thank you for that. That's that internal work, okay? <laughs> So um, one of the most powerful chapters in the book for me was this one called Hierarchies of Body and Mind, and it was about disability justice. And um, I'm going to be honest, it rocked my world, right? And I was just really thinking about how um, ableism really is one of the most acceptable isms that we have in society. And then when you look at the relationship between disability and race, and you've made it clear in this book like no place else I've ever seen, um, then you're really getting into it. And so many systems that are impacted in that way. So I have another quote that I wanna share that is amazing. Because it says, the way ableism is used against communities of color is what makes us feel compelled to regularly prove our value. We have to show we're upstanding, tax-paying, hard-working people instead of feeling like we can insist on our safety and dignity simply because we're human beings. And when we keep trying to prove that there's reasons why we deserve safety, food, shelter, even our very lives, we reinforce the ableist idea that our worth as human beings is tied to external definitions of our contributions to, to society and our productivity. And I hear some mmms out here because this is so powerful. And even the, the uh, title, Hierarchies of Bodies and Mind, that is so deep to me. And so I would love for you to say more about that framing and why that's so important. You know, this was absolutely the, the chapter that rocked me the most as well. I had been working for years to try to learn more about ableism, especially as a writer, it works its way into so many phrases um, and trying to investigate that and learn and grow. But I hadn't really looked at like this structure, the structure of it and how it relates to everything in our society and especially the way in which many BIPOC disabled activists view race as a function of ableism. Mm -hmm. And that really challenged me for a moment. Um, and that, you know, I was told, hey, we're talking about which bodies and which minds have value. And the story of racism in the US is that certain bodies were built for exploitation and their minds weren't capable of understanding or being responsible for themselves. And that at its heart is an ableist argument. Mm -hmm. One that impacts disabled people today and one that impacts populations of color, especially black populations today. And so understanding that means that you can't say this is about ableism this is about race and are not intertwined. They are intertwined and they flow and they mesh with each other. And many black and native people were denigrated for the ways in which they you know, were made to appear 
to fit ableist stereotypes. And many disabled people are denigrated for the ways in which they're made to appear to fit stereotypes of black and native people. It is all tied together because it is all about this idea that some group of people gets to decide which bodies and which minds have value. And then there's the basic fact that racism is disabling. That our communities know disability more than any other. And we are in one of the most disabling events of our history in the COVID pandemic. And so looking at that and just realizing how fundamental it was and in conversations realizing that I hadn't met anyone who really had their finger on the pulse of the work we need to do for liberation like disabled BIPOC activists. And I'm being very specific because it is disabled BIPOC activists. I realized that we had done all of our movements a great disservice by not centering um, disabled BIPOC activists and activism in the work that we do. Yes. So there's an invitation there for us to learn, right? And to take action upon the learning and to have some humility, right? Lots of humility. It's so vital. I mean, it's one of my big pet peeves is like how often, especially in social media, we're allowed to parade around like we came out of the womb fully formed politically. <laughs> I do side, sidebar here because I, I feel like I haven't been entertaining enough. Um, I was so funny last night, y'all. Um, <laughs> I teach, when I teach writing classes, which I don't get to do as much as I like anymore, one of my favorite exercises is um, I get on the whiteboard and I say, we're gonna talk about the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And uh, people are like, what? No, and some people are like, absolutely not. And no, we're gonna, I want you to shout out everything you think about the Kardashians. So many different responses. You know, um, I love them, girl boss, worst things to ever happen to feminism. You know, all of these different opinions. Everyone has a Kardashian opinion. Even the people who don't have a Kardashian opinion really don't have a Kardashian opinion. <laughs> and I write it all up on the board. And I say, at some point in your life, you didn't know a Kardashian existed. That's an assumption that-, that wonderful time. Right. There was a time. There was a time when nary a Kardashian filled our brain space. And now you have all, now they're the worst thing to happen to feminism. And I have people plot their path from what's a Kardashian to they're the end of the world. And the reason why I have people do that is because I want people to investigate these ideas. And I start with something a little more mild, unless you're a Kardashian. <laughs> so that you can see what goes into what you think. 
And it's so interesting how many people have no idea where their current opinion on Kardashians came from. They're like, I remember, I always remember this one woman going, I don't know why I said they were the worst thing to happen to feminism. <laughs> I've been searching my path. Maybe I need to investigate what I've been tweeting. <laughs> and I think that that is so important for us to be investigating our own thoughts, our own beliefs, where they come from, and then being honest about our journey. Because you may find there's no there there. But if there is there there, and you want people to come with you, you have to offer a path. You can't be like, oh, what, well, you've never heard of the Kardashians? What's wrong with you? I was born knowing about the Kardashians. Well then, you know, the person who doesn't know about the Kardashians is like, well, I guess it's too late. Never know what they are. We do that politically all the time. And so we have to have that humility. We have to have that honesty about our path, the path that we're on, the path that we've been on. We have to let people know that we're all subject to this really harmful messaging, that we've all been impacted by it that we're all trying to grow and learn, and that there is space for us to grow and learn. And it doesn't mean I have to hold your hand through it. Please don't DM me. <laughs> Just know it's possible, and there's probably someone a little closer to wherever you are who can be there with you. Like, we all have to do that. It's so important to this work. Do you know what that makes me think of? How we are constantly um, on watching 24-hour news cycle or cycling through our phones or looking, looking at Instagram or TikTok or whatever. So we're receiving all this information because when you were said like, where did you get that idea about the Kardashians? And you're like, I don't know where I got that idea. Probably got it on TikTok or something, right? So we're full of all that. And so um, I wonder, uh, how do we cleanse ourselves? <laughs> I'm for real, like, because, um, so that we can really be our true selves and do this true work, because we're putting a lot of junk in all the time. So do you have a thought about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I knew you did. Yeah. So one of my, one of my, like, important memories in my own political development was in college, and I had a professor who was, like, just known for being really tough, and she had this requirement that every day we were supposed to get the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a local paper. And we were supposed to read them every morning. Like we weren't also have homework and stuff. And we were supposed to read all these sections, the political section, the local section, the economic section. And then we were supposed to have an awareness of what was said because she would randomly pick people to talk about a thing. And we were supposed to talk about what could be gleaned as fact, what was opinion, what was conjecture. And we did this every day. And it was one of the most important educations I had. Because there were so many things presented as fact that weren't fact. So many things presented as fact that had no context or were manipulated. And that kind of media literacy is vital, especially right now. 
There's no one checking anything. And before we get nostalgic, before when it was like, we only had one paper, that paper was trash. <laughs> you weren't sorting through a mountain of it. And so knowing that, like being able to, to learn how to look at these things is really, really important. And then I would just say, pay attention to where you're getting your information from. Your first source for information on an issue should be the people most impacted by the issue. And if you start there, you're going to be a lot closer to the truth all of the time. And so, don't ask me for any names in the questions. I have ADHD. I won't remember a name of anyone I follow. Um, but you can, like, if you really love someone's voice, they're learning and listening to people. If you trust them, go to, like, their Instagram. Click on their following. See who they're following. Follow them. If you have a journalist that you're like, this person seems to really, like, have a lot of integrity telling the truth. This person in this part of the community is saying things I don't get to hear a lot. Who are they getting information from? Expand your world that way and look at it that way. And you'll start to see, if anything, just this is more complicated than it seems. I need to dig a little deeper. And it will also make it easier to start to tell the spaces where consistently what's coming out of these spaces aren't true. And so there are people I look at like I know because I kind of do this thing all the time where I'm like, I immediately Google, if something sparks that, I knew it. <laughs> That's a sign to make sure you actually knew it. <laughs> because reality is not that sweet, not that pretty, not that satisfying. And if you're like, this is exactly what I wanted to hear, do some research. And so there are people I follow who I'm like, they are so aligned with me. I love hearing them, and they have some real gems, and I will never, ever repost a thing they say without doing a couple Google searches because they're tailoring what they say to fit me. And so understand that. Like, understand that there's a whole industry meant to serve you what gets your endorphins going, you know, what gives you that satisfaction, what makes you feel right in the world. And reality should always be informative, not confirmative. And that's, you know, important. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so um, I'm so I just want to talk to you like all night, but. Uh, we're not going to do that, and I know there's things that you all want to say, and um, so I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen out there, but if you have a question, something is going to happen that will enable you to ask it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think we got that resolved earlier. Hello. And I, I also have this iPad, and as soon as I figure out how to turn it on, um, I will see what you put here. Okay. I'm the so, voice of God over here. here. I'm coming down the aisle. We've got a couple mics here, so if you wanted to raise a hand if you had a question, and we'll come run around and come to you. So if you've got any virtual questions, we can start with those while we get some people picked out, but then we'll give it over to you guys. 
There's a really popular question. So apparently what happens is you put something in here and then people vote for the question. So um, this is really popular. How, how do you be a revolutionary in the current political climate where we may be voting again for the lesser of two evils? Mm. That, was, that got a lot of votes. Um, <laughs> look, here's the thing is, I have a definite opinion about this, and if I say it, a bunch of white liberals are going to try to find me after this and talk to me about it, and I don't want to have that conversation. So don't do that, please. Don't do it. But maybe supporting a genocide should cost you your job. That's all I'm saying. You're not allowed to ask me about this. You can write your own articles and get them published. <laughs> um, beyond that, the ballot is not just who's running for president. Understand that. <laughs> Further, what our heads of state feel they can get away with starts locally. So right now on your ballots, you pay attention to what is down ballot. Pay attention to what's happening in your school boards. Pay attention to these little bits of legislation that are trying to take rights away from our most disenfranchised populations. Pay attention to the bits of real progressive legislation people are trying to get in there and support it and know that it matters. It is incredibly vital in times like this because these are times where people are only paying attention to the top of the ballot and a lot of horrible shit gets shoved into local legislation. Pay attention. And if you're upset with what's happening in the White House, find where that connects to what's happening in your city council. Find where that connects to what's happening in your state government. And flex your power there, because it absolutely matters. And if you have a representative who hasn't been able to call for a ceasefire, which is the bare minimum, they are not representing you. And you shouldn't give them that job again. Something that um, I will also add, because I feel like it is a part of the message of this book. We will have heads of state in this country and in other countries, and they will come and they will go. And yes, they have power to cause tremendous harm. But we live in a, an ecosystem of our own in which we are choosing every day how we're gonna show up. Uh, that living your values, how we are going to be kind to each other and thoughtful and, and mindful and accessible and inclusive and all those things. And that actually matters too. So top of the ballot, down the ballot, and your day to day. I just feel like that's also a part of in this being a revolution is knowing that whoever is in the White House. The work you, continues. The work continues. And here's a whole lot of people doing it and we can all be a whole lot of people doing it too. 
So that's what I think the other part of that is. I think we do have some questions from ah, folks ah. in the house. So, I mean, you go if you want to ask. So, I, I did tell you if it was funny, it had to be asked. But we have a, is there a person? Ask right there. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, hi. Um, sorry. My heart's racing. Um, so, one of my favorite um, educators on social media, his name is Conscious Lee. He has this quote that goes, research over me search. Um, that is something that I've had to like tackle a lot where like you went over it where you're like, somebody says something and you're like instinctively like, oh, I know it. Um, when you were writing this book um, where you had to tap a lot into like unheard voices that were part of like the pulse of the revolution, what was something that like you had to like, oh, this is research, not me search, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, a lot of it was people were telling me about their own personal experiences in, in movement work and in their lives and trying to see what does that mean systemically? How is that showing up for other people? And I think a lot of times we're served personal narrative, which is important. We are individual data points of these numbers that we hear. But understanding what that means, you can't just sit in someone's experience and say, I get it now. You have to say, what does this mean then for all of the ways in which this population might be moving through the world? And so that for me was really, really important to not just say I have a compelling story that's gonna make someone cry, let me put it in here, and say, what are the factors of this? How does this look in other people's lives? How could I put this in there so that we're actually talking about this broader issue as well, so that this emotional activation is leading to something that can cause people to do something from a place of knowledge. And so that for me was like resisting that urge to just be like, oh, that hit me in my heart, goes on the page. And say, wait, okay, how does this translate to the overall ideas that we're talking about and does it actually fit? And there were some times where I was like, oh, okay, I actually don't think this fits. Not because it's wrong, but because, you know, people aren't easily siloed all the time and maybe experiences are a little different and I can't say you experienced it this way, everyone's experiencing it this way. And I think that that's so important in the work that we do because then we're able to tie things together in ways we didn't see before, see patterns we didn't see before. Um, and understand where our fates are intertwined. And so that was, that was for me, you know, it wasn't just is this a compelling story, it was what does this look like in a systemic level. So while I'm waiting for someone out there, I have, oops, I lost it. Hold on, this is, this is a good one. Okay, this question, hey mom. <laughs> Hey mom, you mentioned following 
Is it a problem that I still follow Kanye in 2024? <laughs> So literally last day, backstage, I was saying, I really hope my kids don't discover this function. <laughs> here they are. <laughs> um, is it a problem that you, you still follow Kanye? Uh, w it depends on why. <laughs> are you? <laughs> oh, okay. So Pete Davidson, keeping Pete Davidson safe, knowing what... Um, <laughs> what threats might be coming Pete Davidson's way. Um, that can be okay, so long as you're not financially contributing. Uh, don't encourage unhealthy, unsafe behavior. Stop streaming, Kanye. Um, that should be okay. I'm sure Pete Davidson thanks you. We do have an audience question here. Hi, uh, over here. Um, I'm also very nervous. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank you for writing mediocre, uh, mediocre. As a, I grew up a tall kid, it really explained a lot of feelings I had about sports and the way black men are treated as athletes. So I really, from the bottom of my heart, really wanted to thank you for that. Um, secondly, I, I had a question about anger. Uh, in 2020 especially, but even like this morning in the sauna, I find myself in situations where, you know, a, a white person is trying to ask me questions about, you know, being black and like, how is it? <laughs> <laughs> And what I find so hard is it's this situation where they'll ask me something that I have to really compose myself for, and then I have to put, like, you know, angry me in a box. And then when I explain my situation, it's met with usually, like, are you sure? Like, really? And I just wanted to know if you had any advice in that situation, because obviously, you know, I could, A, explode, which I don't want to do, I've never felt. Like, I'm tall, so when I get angry, bad things happen. Or, or B, you know, just oh, pretend like that didn't hurt, but then it just adds to the anger box. And I wanted to know if you had any advice, any quips or anything. <laughs> I'll take anything at this point, but yeah. Thank, thank you. you. All right, so before I address this, boys, I see your phones out. One question already got answered. You should have beat your brother to it if you wanted it answered. All right. Um, actually, what you're asking is really interesting because I had just had a really similar experience on tour. And I went through this tour, I wrote about this in my Substack. Um, having these moments surrounded by community and I was exhausted. It was our final day and my last interview of the day, like the second question this white dude asked me is, why do you identify as black if your mom is white? 
And it went down the hill from there. <laughs> and it's like I switched into this survival mode. And I was having dinner with my partner labor, later. And he was like, how do you do this? You answered on point. You didn't give any ground. But you smiled. You were calm. I knew you were angry. I'm married to you. You didn't let any of that show. You shook a hand, you signed the book, and walked out. Because it's what we're told we have to do. And then I wrote about it as I was processing it because I was really, once I was out of that space and felt safer, then it hit you. And I just was exhausted. I had plans for the evening to see friends and I had to go lay down because I had spent you know, 30 minutes being grilled, completely unaware, on camera. Even though I had specifically said I'd never wanted to be in a situation like that on tour. And I just kept, you know, I was thinking, why didn't I yell? Why didn't I say the truth? This is ridiculous. This is racist. I shouldn't have to do this. You don't treat other guests like this. I should have walked up, take my microphone off, and left. And I didn't, because all the programming for my survival says, you're a six-foot-tall, fat black woman. You cannot yell. You cannot be angry. That will be the story. And I talked about how angry I was and how I felt embarrassed that I hadn't yelled, because I'm worth yelling about. Yeah. And then a white person commented in the post, I'm so glad you didn't yell. Because who knows where he was in his journey. And maybe you being calm helped him learn. I don't exist for that. And so I guess what I want to say is I know the reality that you live in. My brother's six foot six, also can't yell, can't be the slightest bit angry when confronted. My children are tall. My youngest is six four, six five. And that's a reality of like safety, and it's wrong. And I, I guess the only advice I would give is to hold space for that, to hold space for the injustice of that, how wrong it is, how much it hurts, and to have grace for yourself, for what you have to do. Not judge yourself for what you have to do. But then also know that any day that it's too much and you don't want to do it, that's fine. That you have the right to be angry when you are harmed, that you are worth defending, and that you have the right to expect people to listen to what you're saying, even if it's expressed with the anger that you rightfully have.
And knowing that doesn't mean you can always do it. But I do know this, that no one has the right to judge you when you can't do it. And so I hope you don't judge you when you can't do it. And I hope you don't judge you when you're deciding not to yell. And I feel you on that. I hope that helps. was beautiful. Um, okay. Town Hall, how am I doing? Am I supposed we to... Have some back here. Is there somebody some back there getting ready to ask yeah, a question? Behind the pillar. Behind the pillar. I see you. <laughs> Love the kufia. Okay. See it. Get a mic. I'm coming. All right, someone's coming. Where? Okay. Here we go. Okay. Hello. Hello. Thank you. First, I want to say thank you for your outfit. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for your outfit. Um, mm -hmm. I actually have a question about parenting. Um, yeah. I have a 15-year-old. I know it's so hard to believe. Um, <laughs> I have a 15-year-old who exists in a lighter skin tone than I do, much lighter, and exists in a much wider world than I do. And being a revolutionary for me sometimes feels like not only tolerating the racism in which I exist in outside of my own home, but also the racism that exists in my own home. And so I think that we get a lot of rhetoric about having and enforcing these conversations and having these conversations at home. Um, but how, how do you, how do you do that? You know, what I think for myself or any parent in here, especially for black parents um, who live in mixed homes or not, how do you have those conversations with kids who, you know, may choose to use that own violence against you? Um. Let me just hold space for the emotions around that, like the real pain around that, because that's real. Um, you know, one thing I'll say about youth, they're so often asked to fit into a bucket because they're in these confined spaces and I find that so often the ideas around race are so externally defined and rigid for a lot of young people that those of us who are mixed race, people of various skin tones, have seen very deeply this pick, or I've decided you don't fit in this space. 
you will have friends if you're only in this space. And that's a real deep harm, and it manifests in young people in a lot of different ways. And I would say, you know, I have two sons, they're, they're right up here, of different skin tones. And trying to make them aware of their racial identities and the privilege afforded them while holding space for what it means to not be able to always visibly assimilate in an environment that wants you to always visibly assimilate. You know, people my age, we have a lot more nuance. We can look at, like black people can look at someone and be like, there's black somewhere in there. <laughs> right? High schoolers in Seattle <laughs> do not. And kids are making choices for their own social survival. And so I'd say recognizing the, represent, the representation of harm that we see in that, in kids choosing to cut part of themselves away, to denigrate part of themselves and their parentage, because they're told they can only be this one thing that's harm that may, they may not realize is happening to them, but they will, and they'll need to move from. And part of how you help them move from it, too, is helping them understand how they are responsible to the people they're in relationship with. And that means that they are responsible for how they choose to manifest that harm and the harm they cause, and having honest conversations around that, while giving them the space and autonomy to figure out who they are. And also, I think, offering glimpses of what adulthood means. I always remember I had a teacher in middle school who said, you feel really alone right now because your world is this middle school. But when you're older, the world is broader. And no matter what you're into, no matter what your identity, there will be enough people like that, that you will find your people. And you can let go a lot of a lot of these ideas that you don't fit. But for racialized kids in a majority white space, that can be a really long time to wait. And so I would say having conversations around identity, asking kids where they're at, holding them accountable for the ways in which they may be adding harm into your home and offering up a vision of what you want the relationship to be. No teenager wants you to say, I want you to look at yourself this way. No teenager wants you to say, I want you to act this way. But sometimes they can hear you when you say, I want our relationship to be this way. You figure out, you can figure out the rest and I'll support you in the rest but I need to feel safe in my home. I need to feel seen in my home. What do you want in your home? And where can we find the middle ground in that? And the rest you have to kind of build that nurturing environment around and the hopes that by living your truth, you're setting an example that they can follow, even if they will never admit that they followed it.
question over here. You had a question, right? Did I hear a voice? Oh, over right there. Here. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to also commend you on your gorgeous outfit and your uh, kefia. Uh, can we pause, though, because I really don't think y'all are understanding what Michelle Storms is wearing right now. <laughs> Because not only is it gorgeous, but this hair situation. <laughs> you're not seeing the back. You're not seeing the braids going up the back. You're not seeing the fabulousness because there's lights and because she's not turning, which is rude. <laughs> it just had to be recognized. Two black women who really took this seriously. <laughs> In a city that only wears hoodies and jeans. Y'all don't deserve it. You should appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to commend you two on your gorgeous outfit and hair. <laughs> comment on trying to balance being a revolutionary revolutionary it is very hard to speak up when one is marginalized um, and when one is completely erased when I say something because I look the way that I do and will give credence to someone else a white person or someone with more positionality when it is said by them it feels so deflating to speak up and stand up for justice when I have to refer to white voices who have spoken up and stood up just to be believed. And I'd love your advice on how to navigate that. That is a real question that I think a lot of us feel really deeply. There's a couple of things I would say. One, if someone said, what is your ideal day of service? Would you say, talking to white dudes who barely think I'm a person, <laughs> hoping that they'll hear me and maybe absorb one-twelfth of what I have to say? And I ask that because we are often made to perform services in spaces that don't appreciate us, in spaces that don't fill us with love, in spaces that don't hear us, in spaces that don't need us as desperately as our own communities do, simply because a lot of people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I wrestle with this, because if the best of what I have to offer in discussing oppression and systemic racism is given to white people who are gonna nod and toss it out and then act like someone who regurgitates half of what I said half as eloquently is the biggest genius to ever speak about race ever. How is that anti-racism? 
how is that not just white supremacy being what white supremacy is? And how, what is it saying about the value of my time, my effort, my heart? And who is giving the best I have to give to my community? And so I say this because your community deserves that effort. Your family. Hell, you deserve sleep and rest. And it's only because people aren't doing their part that we feel like we have to. And so I would say when you're in a space and you realize I'm not gonna be heard here, you have a choice to make. And sometimes you'll feel like I have to stay in this space because no one else is in this space. They're not gonna bring someone else in this space. But there's a lot of people who are in that space who will get credit for saying almost nothing and maybe they need to actually say something better and you can say, you know what? I'm gonna have another opportunity tomorrow to be ignored by you. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna work on my community. I'm gonna work on my healing. I'm gonna talk to people who might have a little more privilege than me and have a better chance of hearing me. It's not always. I spend a lot of time in whiteness, a lot more, not just because I live in Seattle, <laughs> than I want to, because I feel like, oh, you know, I have a captive audience. They're gonna hear me. But the difference, when I'm talking to my community, we can, we can actually talk what we're gonna do and move forward, and I can take all of my like intellectual prowess, all of my research and years in this work and apply it towards doing rather than convincing, that's a better use of my time. And so I would say, to sum up a very long answer to your question, when you feel like you have to do it, that's okay. When you're not being heard, it's working the way that it always works. But also know you always have the right to say, all of these efforts are better spent in my community and in my space. And every person who gets credit for sharing, resharing a Facebook post or an Instagram post, or putting a sign in their window saying, in this house, all lives matter, they can be deputized to take this message into this space while I do the things that are gonna actually enrich me and make me feel whole. And that's really where I am right now. I can't convince people who don't see me as human to see me as human, because they can't hear me. I hope that helps. All right, we have time for one more question, and I think we've got one right here. Yeah, go for it, you've got the mic, go for it. You're talking to me? You're talking to me? Okay, great. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy, thank you so much. Um, Hello. I'm a huge fan of Mediocre, so I'm very, very excited to read this book. Um, my question is, my, my perspective that I come from is I work in a big corporation, so that's where I spend a lot of my waking hours of the day, and those are the people that I spend my time around, so to me, I really see that is my community, and I really care about the, the people around me. So I founded our first ever employee resource group for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Um, so it's kind of a job on top of a job, right? Right. To do that work. Um, and I was wondering if you have any advice for 
lot of the people here who probably work um, and are trying to change things at their workplace through you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I know it's flawed. So what's your perspective on that? How can we make real change? Is that even possible? Oh, yeah. Um, Y'all will see why people don't invite me to parties in these answers. Right, so I'm going to say this, and it's and it and it, it's just true. You can't change a corporation, but you can change things for people within it. You can change people within it. Those changes only last as long as those people carry it with them. And corporations will try to sell you the idea that you can change them. Oh, we value what you're doing. You're really making us better. Well, you're better as long as I can get credit for that, as long as it's profitable, as long as it's popular. All it takes is one different board meeting, and suddenly everything that you've said doesn't exist anymore. And so I'm not saying don't try. I'm saying your definition of success has to lie within individuals. I'm a systemic thinker, but because I know systems, I know that's not a system you can change, but you can change people so that they can see how they can impact systems, so that they can move through the world differently. Or if anything, you can just affirm the love you have for your community by seeing what you can do to make sure that you and your community in this space can move through this space more wholly. And that has to be the definition of success in the work that you do. Where you think they're going to change a policy and a procedure and it's going to last, you're going to be heartbroken. But if you think this is what I can get right now, and I'll see it in this finite impact on this person that I care about, success. Regardless of whether they roll that back. Corporations who care about equity, I have yet to meet one. <laughs> will treat it like the things they care about. And that means they don't throw volunteers at it. It means they pay for it. It means they have definitions of success that are measurable. It means that they reward people who meet those definitions and they penalize people who don't. And if you don't see any of that, let go of the idea you can change the corporation. But the good news is then you can find success in every way in which even you're like, you know what? This is what will get me through this day with joy. That is success. This is what will put a smile on my coworker's face. This is what will mitigate the impacts of this space for this person. That is all so much more important and so much more lasting because the individuals in that space can do so much more than that corporation can and matter so much more. And so I hope that helps even though it's kind of a hard pill to swallow because we're told time and time again, like I have been like, I worked at a company once that had me like change shirts so I could have multiple pictures for the company website because there weren't enough black people. And they wanted it to be like, we're diverse. 
And I wanted to be like, oh, like people won't know, but you know people won't know. <laughs> I know what that looks like when people will flatter you and tell you they need you and tell you you're changing everything and you're just not. But, what you, but you can change things, it's just in a different way. Hope that helps. I know we're gonna um, run out of time really shortly and I really wanna pick up this question that uh, okay. came in on yeah. here because I've lost track of this for a minute. And then we have desperate people here, I promise like at least at okay, least, and then we'll pick up a desperate question there yes. after this, and then we have to wrap up. Yeah. So um, this person says, in my disability justice work, I found often that it's my fellow black folk that most often denigrate and exclude people with disabilities, yeah. especially in the areas of neurodivergence and, quote, weirdo, unquote, madness. I've experienced so much harm and resistance trying to discuss discuss diagnosis codes, access to accommodations, et cetera. What, the question is, what is a compassionate, effective way to deal with this lateral harm? I mean, one thing I would say, first of all, like that harm is real. I recognize that. And you have every right to feel harmed. Um, one I would say is recognizing where that comes from. So it comes from this constant idea that we have to prove our worth and our value in these really capitalistic, ableistic ways. And this erasure of what disability looks like in our communities. This idea that we have control over this one aspect, our bodies and our minds, when so much is taken away from us. And it can contribute to this, this ableism that's really rooted in fear of all of the ways in which we are harmed and how that might show up in our bodies and minds. And recognizing that is important. And I would say if you are trying to be generous enough, because it is a generosity, to try to move forward in these community spaces that are perpetuating harm from a place of harm, one recommendation I have is talking about what disability actually looks like in community. We have been punished for being disabled in our community. The reason why people are reluctant to talk about it, re reluctant to say they're disabled in black and brown, and Asian, immigrant, and indigenous communities is because saying I have a disability, I am disabled, means a different thing than if you're white. Always has. And so recognizing, you know, that your aunt who's going through a spell is disabled. That your uncle who can't walk outside when it rains is disabled. That, that tense feeling you have out in crowds and you have to go inside is a sign of disability. Talking about that and creating space for that and saying this is disability in our communities, in the people we love. It is here, it is in our everyday. We talk about it every day without saying the words. Can allow space for people to let go of that fear of being classified as disabled 
are recognizing that disability issues impact their lives. And I'd say that's always a really good place to start, to just say, hey, you know, we haven't been calling it what it is, but if you're not disabled in our communities, someone incredibly close to you is, and you're not only making accommodations for them, you're loving them, you're accepting them, but, it, but because we can't call it that because that's been penalized because that person may well say, don't you dare. We have this separation that we feel like buys us safety. And so it's really vital that we talk about what disability looks like, our, looks like in our communities. And it's also really vital that we talk about the ways in which ableism impacts us all. And by leaning into that ableism, we actually make ourselves unsafe. And we have to understand that every time we say, he didn't deserve to be shot, he was a college graduate, we're saying, someone else did. Every time we say, she, she deserved better, she had a good job, she was a productive member of society. We are setting up excuses for our own demise because the powers that be will always find a reason until we say we exist, therefore we deserve to live. And so that's where I would say to start is by saying like, let's investigate what this actually looks like in our spaces. Um, but also knowing like, you do have a right to be, feel hurt and harmed, to feel unsafe, um, to demand some spaces where you are safe where perhaps people who are contributing to harm aren't in, all of that is important and valid. And I, and I hope that you can find time to prioritize that because you need to level set. That's the thing I have learned. I have to spend a certain amount of time with like queer femmes of color, especially black femmes of color, black femmes. Because I, don't, I just need a time where I don't have to check everything I'm saying, where I don't have to be alert as to what's gonna come out of left field and hit me and make me feel unsafe, so that I can remember how I'm supposed to be able to move through the world. And everyone deserves that. And so please prioritize that as you move through this. So I, I understand there's a desperation question and then I have to stop there or okay. town hall will never yeah. let me come in here again. We, so, have, we have like um, one really desperation question right here and I just want to make space for this because I promised and I'm not a liar. Okay, so, so just can, shout it out and I will, and we'll I will rephrase it. for you if... Raise three children in this country, this is 
I never ever in my wildest uh, or scariest nightmare thought that I would have to experience the things that I have to experience here. And you know, living in the thousands already. I mean, we're 2024. My kids uh, now are in their 20s and 30s. And they are still going through that. And I've gotten to, it has gotten to the point that I've told them, please don't tell them that you are a son or daughter of a South American from Peru. Uh, tell them that, you know, their father is white. In, in a, but why? Like they go through their jobs, nonprofits, and they tell them, it's like, oh, there comes the queen from Peru. Or, my daughter is beautiful, in and out, but she doesn't have to be treated like if it's a cardinal sin because she's Irish. Uh, God created me the color that I am, and I'm happy with my color. Here, where you see me standing up, the hair that you see here is a third of my hair. I had abundant hair. My scalp has been perforated five times because they wanted to turn me blonde. And I kept telling them, I'm not blonde and I don't want to be blonde. My hair is blonde and I'm proud of it. I like it. God knows what he does. But though in spite of it, and these are reputable places, Gary Manuel, Gene Juarez, uh, and to see, I mean, several hair salons into hotel that where you expect to get a good service, where I was paying money. Uh, same thing, my kids in uh, Christian schools. I found out like my daughter, a, a young child, when she was, what, six years old. I'm looking, I go to see how she was doing and observe the class, and I'm looking for her. I couldn't find my daughter in the class, and where she? All of a sudden, I realized she was behind the door. The teacher had put her behind the door. And I said, well, I have to ask the teacher, right? And my daughter, no, no, don't tell her. I asked the teacher, why is my daughter behind the door? Well, you know, I have to put somebody <laughs> <laughs> my daughter to me. And she was a whole year behind the door. And I can see now the fruits of that kind of treatment. It leaves scars for life of future. How, how the heck, how in the world, this racism that is pure and sheer evil, one of the worst evils that you can see in the world is criminal to do this to a child, to teenagers in high school. Uh, how is it possible that this is being perpetrated? Preschools, middle schools, high schools, universities, places where, where they are told that they're not acceptable, that they are not right, that there is something wrong with them. And you see the fruits afterwards where they are embarrassed of their ethnicity, where they come from, of their parents. I've gotten to the point that they have please forgive that I Authorities, policemen, police calling you, calling you, complaining. I speak English. I speak English. 
Um, I know that there are some people who couldn't hear that, and I, of course, can't verbatim repeat what you said. 
But if I should paraphrase, I hope that I do it justice. You were talking about a lifetime of experiencing racism as a mixed race person of color, watching it in your children, watching your children experience this, trying to figure out ways to keep them safe, trying to do what you can so that they wouldn't have to experience what you continue to experience in life. And wondering what, after all of these years, decades, can be done to impact it so that you can be safe, so that your children can be safe, so that your family can be safe. So that in this space that has been, is you know, supposed to be the most progressive in the world, can actually live up to those ideals. I hear you. There's a lot of ideas that we're told will keep us safe. And unfortunately for us, safety is not guaranteed. But I will say, how you live, why you live, your best chance at being able to feel seen, heard, recognized, while you are here, is going to always be in black, brown, indigenous community. There is no space of whiteness that's going to be safe for you. Because whiteness was constructed. Whiteness didn't exist until we did. Whiteness didn't exist until we needed to be exploited and dehumanized. Until we needed to be separated and denigrated. So whiteness is not a liberatory thing. Whiteness itself is an oppression that only exists because oppression exists. It's really important to understand that. The concept of whiteness in the United States became a legal concept when a white man slept with a black woman and they decided we have to figure out how to make sure this doesn't happen again. And I say that because in a world that it feels really unsafe for so many of us, being able to turn to other people of color and at least know that they might see you and hear you while you're in this space and might have your back, might tell you that you aren't losing it, that what you're experiencing is real and it's happening every day and that you deserve better and here's what we're doing right now to try to get through this space. Maybe we can get through it together is the most important thing. We're told so often, especially those of us who immigrate, who immigrate into the United States. My father was an immigrant. That the quickest that you can make friends with whiteness, be confused with whiteness, fade into whiteness, the safer you'll be. And the exact opposite is true. Because it will cut you off from understanding what isn't being said, why you're being treated the way that you are. And it will leave you without any help, backup, support when these things happen. And so I would say the long term, the ultimate, the only solution we have is for populations of color 
to come together and not in a let's pretend that black, you know, that anti-blackness doesn't exist. Let's not pretend that anti-indigeneity doesn't exist. Let's work through it. Let's see how we have been conditioned and rewarded for turning against each other. Let's heal that without a white audience and find out how we can move forward. And so I would say lean into community. Lean into the stories in this majority white city that we're in that every person of color has had to face here and all of the different ways that that white supremacy can look and how we're surviving and reach out a hand and say, I really need someone here with me. And I promise you, we'll be there with you. And we'll be there with your kids. And your kids won't have to just tell someone they have a white parent. That they will be seen wholly for who they are. And I cannot say that guarantees safety. But nothing does. But I can guarantee that while they're here, there will be spaces they feel safe in. They feel seen in. And honestly, that's how we've been keeping going for multiple generations. And we deserve that even while these systems exist. So I hope that helps. So, Ijoma, you speak um, so much truth and so much wisdom. You speak to our anguish and to our struggle, but you also speak to our hope and our possibility and our joy. It's been an honor to be in this conversation with you. I am so grateful. And everyone, let us just please bask in the, in the sparkly joy <laughs> and brilliance of Ijoma Oluo. <laughs> That was writer and speaker Ijoma Oluo speaking with ACLU of Washington Executive Director Michelle Storms at Seattle Town Hall on February 9th. This was a production of Town Hall Seattle. Special thanks to Town Hall Seattle and the speakers for permission to broadcast this event. For more information on their events, you can visit townhallseattle.org.